and welcome to another edition of the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. On the back of this hugely thought-provoking session at this year's National Leadership Conference, I have Bruce Daisley with me today. And I must say, I'm extremely excited to dig into some of these topics that we covered at the National Leadership Conference. Bruce is a former vice president of Twitter, now known as X, and the organization's most senior employee outside the US. He's also an author, speaker, consultant, and even a podcaster himself. So Bruce, let's get right into it. If you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you've done a, a pretty uh, thorough job of it there. Yeah, it, it does it does date you a bit. It's like carbon dating if you say you worked at Twitter now, because obviously it's uh, it's got a different name. But yeah, I worked at Twitter for a long time. And in fact, during the time I was there, I became intrigued with workplace culture and workplace dynamics, sometimes because it was going well, sometimes because it wasn't going well. And, and as a lead, it's sort of a, an interesting challenge. How can I... Once I've recognized that workplace culture is one of the things that's differentiating and, and motivating the team that we've got here, when it's not working as effectively, how do you set about changing that? And so I became a podcaster and then a published author on that topic. And that's really how I spend my time now, helping a wide range of companies to reflect on what their culture feels like today and help them try and enhance it and develop it, really. Bruce, you obviously have a lot of knowledge about workplace culture. So one of the topics that I want to hear from you about is this whole concept of the four-day work week. I'm seeing a lot of talk about it on LinkedIn recently, and most of it seems quite positive with a lot of the organizations who've done it on a trial basis opting to keep that going forwards. And obviously, it won't work for all organizations. It won't, won't work for all employees. But you raised an interesting point at the National Leadership Conference. You said that people might feel less connected when they work shorter, more focused weeks. So why is that? And if leaders are opting to go down this route of the four-day work week, how can they help people develop connections and to feel more connected as opposed to just focusing on work and, you know, not really being part of the workplace culture? It's, it's a really interesting challenge. I guess if you were to reflect on one of the trends that's taking place in the world of work right now, work is becoming slightly more transactional. And the, the examples we might see of that are that people are reporting a lower level of connection with their colleagues. They're, re they're seeing their job as something that they can focus on getting the KPIs done themselves. And they, they're sort of, and work is less of, a tightly cohesive thing and more of a transactional thing. And to some extent, the four day week sits part of that. Uh, one of the things that has been observed, we, we've got really rich data from international experiments with the four day week broadly in, in every Western country, really. These, uh, there's lots of experiments and there's really intriguing things that we learn. The first thing that we learn from it is that most organizations can't necessarily just immediately switch to a four day week. You can't press a button and try and get. <laughs> And try and get the work done in the shorter time because broadly it, it's worth giving the emphasis that the reason why people would transition to a four-day week is there's a notion that by working in a different way you can achieve the same amount in four days rather than in five days now what it requires then is pretty evidently you've got to stop doing some stuff, you know, because if you're currently filling 40 hours a week and you're about to fill 32 hours a week, then you can't do everything that you were previously doing. What organizations tend to do is they tend to rationalize some of the 
the interactions really they they generally try and make meetings shorter faster and the, the overall feeling is that there's something about knowledge work using our brains where actually if we work a shorter amount it doesn't dilute what we achieve i think a few of us might recall maybe fridays where you're feeling a bit a bit battle weary you don't get as much done on fridays you you tidy up the the rest of the week and the notion of the four day week is that actually by giving people that day for free giving them that day where they they can just recharge themselves when they do return to their workstations on on monday they just feel a lot more productive and and a lot more focused but look you know it's really in- interesting some of the second order effects that we've witnessed to four day weeks is that teams report feeling even less cohesion they report that social time is sort of the stuff that's squeezed out that you know a casual um, conversation with someone or a sitting down for a coffee with someone are the things that tend to get squeezed out. They, I also saw one organization that witnessed a, a unexpected second order effect. Um, they, that their employees or a, a large number of their employees didn't tell their partners they'd gone down to a four day week. So, you know, it's sort of, it's an interesting thing. I'm really intrigued with it because I think one of the considerations about AI is possibly that we're going to have to, reflect and consider working in a, in a different way. And the four-day week is, is part of that discussion, I think. Thanks very much, Bruce. And staying on that concept of connections, which are really important in workplace culture, you mentioned at the NLC that having a friend at work is absolutely key to employee retention. And I think a lot of organizations probably completely overlook that, especially those bigger, more traditional companies where you're there to do a job, you're a cog in the machine, you know, and I gave it a bit of thought myself. And I've definitely seen organizations that I've worked with in the past where people didn't make those friend connections, people felt disconnected, people felt discontent, and there was a huge staff turnover. So it sounds like a bit of a silly question, but how can leaders facilitate people making friends at work? Yeah, this comes from the Gallup um, Global Workplace Report. And it's it's a really rich source of data. I think it's valuable for anyone to read. There's, there's data about Ireland in there. There's, there's data that you can reflect on, you know, how people are experiencing work. I think broadly about 11, 12% of Irish workers are engaged with their jobs. And that's an interesting start point because one of the things like you mentioned is that having a friend at work seems to be one of the things that pushes us away from being this 11, 12% into, you know, 50, 60%. It, it pushes us into much higher engagement. One of the other factors, 80% of workers who who say that they've received actionable feedback from their boss in the last week are engaged. And that's really interesting because I, I put those two things together. Um, if you've received actionable feedback from your boss, you feel seen, you feel like your work matters. And the friendship part is similar to some extent. You know, if you've got a friend at work, it's you feel like the the nature of friendship is feeling seen, is feeling understood. And I think both of those things go to the heart of making people feel like they're going into work, their work matters. It's not just their presence that matters. It's not just if they they've come into the office today but actually something they've done has helped the organization and uh and so you know if i was leaders or an or a boss of an organization thinking number one how can i facilitate people to make friendships um i, I saw a really fascinating 
presentation by someone from a big retail store uh, a few months ago. And I I was really taken with the fact that they said they they obviously have office workers, they've got people in store, but they said they realized that the teams that were highest performing, performing in their organizations were the ones that used their social budgets. And the ones that were lowest performing hadn't used their social budgets. And like you say, it's it's not necessarily those social th- side of things aren't necessarily the thing that leaders reach for when they're thinking about changing strategy. They're thinking about trying to re-energize the team. But I think feeling seen and feeling like our contribution matters and, and our presence is observed, are really human elements of understanding how to make work feel more fulfilling for us, really. That's really interesting. And it's a relatively simple thing that can be done, you know, looking at that example of departments that have used their social budget, that's something that can really be emphasized by leaders. So it's really interesting to hear about that. Thank you so much. And I guess having a friend at work is part of workplace culture, but it's not all of workplace culture. So you mentioned that workplace culture and employee retention are so closely linked. So can you think of any examples of companies that have created a really strong culture that has led to improved retention rates yeah i I think you know the the component what you often find is that first thing it's for for all of us to understand there's a really important lesson that often culture most vividly exists at a team level rather than a company level and i think that's quite helpful so that means that we might not be the chief exec ourselves but we might have a team and actually we can shift the dial we can have an impact on our own teams even if organizationally the organization's challenged or if different departments have got different (laughs) different problems actually um knowing that we can impact our own team is, is really critical look how do you build great culture well the the first thing that anyone does is you've got to build trust and trust is really vital i I was really fortunate to chat to uh, one of the the world's leading experts on on uh, workplace culture, a, a woman um, called Frances Fry, and she's the person that organisations like Uber, when their culture is toxic and goes wrong, they call Frances Fry. And I was really taken with one thing she said to me. She said, um, "One way to build cynicism quickly in an organisation is to ask people for their input and then do very little with the information they give you." I loved it. I loved it. And she said, so anytime you do a staff survey, anytime you do a pulse report and people tell you what's wrong, if you don't do anything, trust will go. And firstly, it's incredibly relatable. She said, you know, if you think about staff surveys, quite often you do them and then it'll be like three months before the results are presented back to you. Or it will be ages and ages. And you're like, well, I know how surveys work. The results are ready now. You know, why not? demonstrate the urgency that the company is trying to help by by turning these things around by Monday morning and showing people what's what's going to change that week. Um, And I just was really taken with that because just at the heart of all workplace culture is trust. And to the point I said before, sometimes the trust can just exist in your team. In fact, I've worked in teams where it's felt like we weren't necessarily confident about the way that the whole company was going, but we knew that our business unit together was going to make things work and was going to work for each other and support each other and that trust is a really critical element so any leader thinking what can i do to make my culture better anything that's in service of building trust 
is the best possible thing. And so that is, you know, sometimes trust is by having that social connection with each other, we become a bit more comfortable with disagreeing with each other. Productive disagreement is one of the most important things of good teams. You know, if all you're doing in your team is everyone's agreeing, they're either agreeing with a strong dominant boss or they're agreeing with each other because they don't want to offend each other. Actually, the work won't be the highest quality and there'll be a degree of inauthenticity. So actually, sometimes having those social connections help us disagree more easily while preserving trust i think you know all of them all of them actually if you get to the heart of workplace culture it's not a lot different to every other part of psychology is every other part of of dealing with other people when we trust each other when we like each other we tend to do better work together thanks very much bruce it makes so much sense what you're saying there about how surveys i guess are all too often a box ticking exercise as opposed to a way for the company to make real change. So I think that's really interesting. And it's definitely a bit of food for thought for our leaders who are listening to this today. I think one concept that really ties into a lot of what we've been speaking about today is remote work. A lot of employees are looking for remote work. And you mentioned at the NLC that remote work is actually a diversity and inclusion issue. I totally understand that. But we have to face the reality that a lot of workplaces are mandating a return to the office, at least for part of the week. So where is the balance that comes in for an employee who's looking for remote work versus a company who wants as much of possible, uh, as much as possible of a return to the office to help create that workplace culture? Yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting challenge that the moment we're in. You know, it's worth saying. I I was working with one organization this week and the woman said, look, I'll be honest with you. I want it to go back to the way it was before everyone in the office laughing and joking together. And I think that's a wonderful characterization of, I think, an era that didn't really exist. You know, most offices in 2019 were not filled with laughter and joking every day. You know, there's a lot of people with headphones on because it was so noisy. A lot of people really struggled to get work done in open plan offices. Um, You know, it wasn't necessarily the this sort of green pastures that we're describing across the valley. And and so probably the best thing we can do now is think, OK, well, let's start from where we are now. Is there any way for us to make work more cohesive, more enjoyable? And probably there's a couple of things along the way there. Um, office time, if it works best, needs to be coordinated. So I do deal with some organizations who say, oh, we just want people in one or two, two, two or three days a week, pick your day. And the challenge with that is that when we're together in person, um, we get some benefits from that. You know, I mentioned before productive disagreement. What you find is that um, divergent meetings, meetings where people are disagreeing with each other, actually they work more effectively when people are face to face because you can kind of read that okay, we're disagreeing, but we still like each other. We still trust each other. There's still warmth. Um, those <laughs> those things tend to work better face-to-face. But so the critical first step is that, okay, are you coordinating your office time? Now, of course, that's a, an annoying thing for a lot of people. They, they don't want to be told what days they're in the office. But what we know is that, that some degree of trade-off and compromise seems to make things more effective. Second thing is that, um, you know, a lot, what we've observed in the last four years, if there's been some sort of big trends, that a lot of people have taken on longer commutes now than they had previously. And what that means is that while we might say that there's a real value to social time, 
a lot of people might be in the situation where if they've got a long drive or a long journey back at the end of the day, they don't want to be going out on a, an evening thing. And so to some extent, we might say to ourselves, OK, if we value social activities so much, we're going to do them maybe at lunchtime or we're going to do them in work time in the afternoons. We're, we're going to do, do team building activities that maybe aren't asking people to give up their evenings again. It's a change to what we might have seen before. There, there would have been a time and a place that social activities meant at the end of the day, at six o'clock, everyone went to the pub next door. Right. That that might have been a very typical way of doing it. I think what we've recognized now is that there's been an evolution away from that. There were always some people who didn't come to the pub. There's always some people who didn't enjoy coming to the pub, the people who can't afford to come to the pub. And so I, I think I, the, the, the way I've seen it with some of the best teams right now is that they've They've almost challenged themselves. You know, we need to be a bit more entrepreneurial, uh, entrepreneurial about forging connections. We need to be a bit more um, clever about making sure that the, theme, the team feel bonded together in a way that maybe happened by accident before. And so, you know, that's what I'm witnessing with the best firms. They're really finding a way to make the team feel they've got a connection with each other without maybe going into some of the trends and traditions that we did in the past. Thanks very much, Bruce. I think one of the biggest enablers of remote work is obviously technology. So before we had platforms like Zoom and Teams, it would have been a lot more difficult to facilitate remote work. But there are even, I guess, more advanced technology options that are already here or are coming down the line that might enable us to not only do more remote work, but also just more efficient work and one of those that you mentioned at the NLC was bots that can attend meetings for you. And I love that idea. I go to a lot of meetings. I would love to be able to send a bot to some of my meetings for me. So how can people influence upwards, I guess, if there's any resistance from higher ups in terms of being able to send this bot to a meeting for them? And also, how does that technology work? I think it's available now, right now, today on Microsoft and Google. So if your company uses Google Workspace or if you use uh, if you use Microsoft Teams products, um, now it's really interesting. It's thirty euro extra a month, and so per user, and so it's highly possible that your IT department or someone might say, "I'm not sure we want to spend extra thirty euro," but it's a really interesting challenge, isn't it? Because if you consider 30 euro a month compared to the average salary inside the organization, it's going to be, you know, a, a fraction of a percent of, uh, of the salary of anyone inside your work. But it says, are we willing to experiment with changing the way that we work today to try and make work more productive? Really interesting. If we look into this, I saw a piece of work this week that took just standard off the shelf chat GPT and gave it to consultants. And it found that the consultants' quality of work improved by 40% um, just using the off-the-shelf chat GPT. And most of us, most organizations I chat to, they say, we're not ready to experiment with AI yet, or we haven't got time to do it, or we're keeping an open brief. There's someone in the, there's someone in the IT department who's taking a look at it. And, and what you get from both of these things, the ability to send a bot to a meeting will summarize the meeting for you. It'll tell you that meeting that you had a clash for, Here's the four bullet points. Here's what Dave said. Here's what the conclusion was. Now, there's an opportunity for the person who runs that meeting to, to 
edit those and, and sign them off and agree them, or you can just use the, the raw transcripts. But it's a really intriguing way for us to think right now about how we could make work better immediately in 2024. But we're only going to do it if we experiment. And the really interesting thing for most of us is that we feel too busy with our day job to experiment. And it's it's really interesting if you thought of a metaphor for that, if you thought of a metaphor that, you know, someone is presented the opportunity to learn to drive and drive a car, but they're too busy walking. I, I can't, I, I've got to, unless I set off now, I'm never going to walk there in time. And knowing that if, if you took a few hours to learn to drive, you could drive there in half the time. Well, of course, it's an, it's an obvious trade-off, but that's kind of a direct metaphor for what we're going through right now. And so using the opportunity of AI and thinking about how we can integrate it straight away is really important. I chatted to a retail firm and I was really taken because almost every organization I chat to um, about AI, they say, we're not using it yet, but keeping an open mind, this retail firm, uh, the, the marketing leader said to me, I've told my team, don't bring me anything unless you've put it through chat GPT first. So if we're buying, if we're writing, writing a buyer's guide to curtains, make sure the first draft is done by chat GPT. Then you bring your human touch to it, make it better. And she told me the reason why she was doing it is because the more people just get into the habit of it being part of the workflow, they just start getting the, they start getting the dividends straight away. So one of the biggest dividends of, of AI is it solves the problem of the, the blank page that, you know, we can often sit there for ages thinking, how do I start this? Well, AI just takes that challenge away. And while you immediately might look at it and go, I'm changing that, 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 it's got you started and it, it's probably harvest them out of time. And I think this is the interesting thing. So sending a bot to a meeting is probably something that most of us haven't done yet. But the the thing I would suggest is, we probably need to commit to trying it in the next three or six months. Otherwise, we're missing up a potential huge benefit of the way technology is advancing before our very eyes. I really love that metaphor of not having time to learn to drive a car because you're too busy walking. Yeah. I think that's definitely something we should be thinking about, how we can embrace these opportunities that are out there and that when you're a business, all of your competitors are going to be using these opportunities. So you really need to start using them. And even internally in IMI, we're using ChatGPT on my team. I sometimes use it to help me write podcast questions or to help me put together blogs. And it's been really, really useful. So it really is just about embracing that technology and thinking about how you can use it for your day-to-day -day work. So thanks very much and, for that. And let and let yeah. me tell you, I, um, I pay for the the premium is like 20 euro a month uh, on ChatGPT. And they've just this week introduced the ability to speak to it like an Alexa. And my goodness, it is mind blowing. I was walking somewhere yesterday and I asked it a question, a specific question. I asked it to outline something and then give me examples of companies that were doing this. And it gave me really specific examples of companies that were doing it. When I pushed back and I asked her like, oh, can you improve that? I'm not sure about that. Anyway, it, I don't know whether it's the fact it was reading it to me and it's, it's got really fascinating intonation. It pauses, it sometimes hesitates before saying things. It's really intriguing, but I was like, Oh my goodness. You know, it, it made Alexa feel like a sort of Fisher price speak and spell. It, it felt, wow, it was dazzling. So, so much of this is happening right around us. And it'll be strange to reflect back in a few years and say, this technological revolution was taking place. And we kind of didn't do anything to use it. 
That's really interesting. I hadn't heard about that chat feature, so I'll definitely have a look at that myself. And Bruce, I want to end off with a couple of questions about social connections. So you mentioned at the NLC that there is a connection between health and the number of social groups that a person belongs to. And I'm sure that has to come with a caveat because there might be certain types of people who don't want so many different social groups, who might find that a bit overwhelming. But in general, there is correlation there. So how can leaders facilitate that within the organization? Not necessarily how individuals make friends, but kind of creating different social groups that people can belong to. It's really interesting. Uh, you know, probably the, the caveat that you offer there is because we sort of, we like categorizing the world into introverts and extroverts. And the very fact that someone's categorized that makes us think that that's an objective fact. Whereas it's really just a sort of direction of travel, really. The, you know, there's no, there's not a medically diagnosed introvert or extrovert. But what we do know is that the if people are hospitalized for various different things, the biggest thing predicts that how they're going to be in five years is how many social groups they report feeling part of. Sometimes your family is counted as one of those groups. Sometimes it isn't. But, you know, if you're part of a cycling group, if you're part of a, a Zumba class, if you're if you if you've got a, a group of friends that you meet on a regular basis, something else, it's the all of these things strangely and almost inexplicably seem to be um, preserving for us. They used to be they seem to be enhancing for us anyway. So the question we might ask ourselves is, well, how can work play a part in that? What you do observe is that what are sometimes called resource groups are really helpful here. This might be all the uh, people of different ethnicities in a certain organization or people of different genders or sexualities. And what we find, or it might be just mums at a company or, or runners at a company. What we find is that those little resource groups seem to be one of the biggest things that enables a better, more connected culture. It makes someone, back to my original point, makes someone feel seen inside the organization. Um, so I think... The 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 thing I would say is that, look, you know, um, all of this is complexity. Trying to make workplace culture more effective seems to be a value. When we ask people what's the most important thing in a job, actually the culture is one of the things that comes out top. And so what we know is that we need a whole load of different approaches, resource groups, friendship groups, trying to forge connections. All of these things play a part in trying to create a better organisation. Thanks very much, Bruce. And I think that's also a very simple win for an organization because it doesn't take a lot of resources to create a cycling group or a pet lovers group or a book club or whatever it might be within the organization. And finally, I'm going to end off with a question about Twitter or X in the context of social groups. I think that it was once a great tool for creating connections with people who did share the same interests as you, whether that might be people within your field of work or people who like the same sport, the same books, the same music, whatever it might be. I'm not sure it is the place for that anymore. It might be, but mm. I think that as people start using AI technology more, platforms are getting a little bit less social and a bit more individual. Are there any yeah. up and coming platforms or digital tools that people can use to make connections? Yeah, Mark Zuckerberg said this week, he said, you know, if he was thinking about a social network today, it would look far more like WhatsApp than than Facebook. I think because it's about private conversations with 
control groups that you, you you maybe sort of feel part of. And to some extent, WhatsApp is adjacent to Slack, really. It's like the the sort of home version of Slack. It's it's threaded conversations with individuals and, and groups. Um, so I think those things are going to play a part. I agree with you that the big public networks probably are going to be a, a less important for us. Um, but trying to find connection with like minds seems to be incredibly important still. You know, it's really interesting. If you look at things in a... Um, a sort of an objective way, then some of the the groups that have sprung up online that connect people who feel a a sense of shared identity, a sense of shared purpose, um, they seem to be really effective at making at reducing a sense of loneliness, even when people don't meet in person. So you witness this a lot with the fandoms of different pop groups. You know, most popularly, I guess, you know, you'd, you'd associate this with young, younger women or teenage girls, but they seem to be incredibly effective at building a, a connection between people who often don't see each other or, or see each other once a year. Um, and we can learn a lot from that. We can learn a lot from those distributed groups of shared identity and shared interest, because I think all of them will help to make us feel more connected in an increasingly disconnected world. Thanks very much, Bruce. I was definitely a part of some of those fan communities as a younger person amongst people who lived in all sorts of different countries, but shared that same interest. Thank you very much for elaborating on that. And thank you for joining us on the IMI Talking Leadership podcast today. Thank you to everyone for listening. You can subscribe on SoundCloud or your preferred podcast provider to ensure that you don't miss an episode. Or you can join us on LinkedIn and tell us what you think about some of these topics that we've covered today. Until next time, 